Thanks to Slack for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Slack is a collaboration hub that lets you organize your team's work into channels where everyone is included, relevant information is in one place, and new team members can easily get up to speed. Learn more at slack.com. Support for Motley Fool Answers also comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Home plays a big role in your life, and that's why Quicken Loans created Rocket Mortgage. It lets you apply simply and understand the entire mortgage process fully so that you can be confident that you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com fool. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Allison Southwick, and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert here at The Motley Fool. Hey, bro. Well, hello, Allison. I notice you're keeping your distance from me on the table. <laughs> I, that was not intentional at all. Uh, not intentional, but probably smart because I do have the flu. Uh, in this week's episode, we're going to combat five common myths about paying for college with the help of Tim McFillin and Brock Jolly from the collegefundingcoach.org. Bro is also going to talk about the point at which investment returns become more important to your retirement savings than the amount you contributed. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. So, bro, what's up? Well, Allison, as you know, your retirement savings will be made up of two components, and that is the amount that you save and contribute to those accounts, and then the investment returns that you earn on those savings. But at different stages in your life, one will be more important than the other. So, when you're starting out, the amount that you actually save will by far have the biggest impact on your account balances. But as those accounts get bigger, investment returns become more important. And at some point, they'll have a bigger influence on the ultimate amount that you have for retirement. But at what point does that happen? When does that crossover point occur? Well, it turns out that a recent article in Money Magazine by Walter Updegrave provided an answer based on a hypothetical worker who makes $45,000 a year, gets a 2% raise each year, saves 10% of her salary, and earns 6% annually on her investments. So here are the numbers according to Walter. So after that first year, investment returns basically just they're not a big factor. They account for just $20 a month or 5% of the total. Again, getting money into the account is what's important. But by year 8, things start to change. Returns equal more than half of the monthly contributions. And then a little more than 13 years into saving for retirement, that's when you reach the crossover point. Investment gains exceed the amount that you contribute to the account, at least based on this scenario. And then it just snowballs from here, from there. So 23 years in, gains are doubling the amount that you save. By year 30, gains are tripling the amount. Year 35, gains are accounting for four times more than you put into the account. And then by year 38, gains are five times bigger than the contributions. So what are the key takeaways? First, when you're young, focus your energies on saving as much as possible. And that includes what you put in, but also making sure that you're taking advantage of the employer match. Not surprisingly, the person who saves 10% of her salary will have twice as much for retirement as the person who saves just 5%. That's the math. One of my roles here at The Fool is meeting with individual employees who have retirement questions or any sort of financial questions. And I'm often meeting with new employees. They tend to be young and they don't know a lot about personal finances or investing, and they come in and they ask what they should be prioritizing. And I always tell them, at that stage, focus on budgeting, focus on finding ways to save money so that you can contribute more to your account. You ideally want to be saving 15% total out of the gate when you start saving for retirement. But gradually, 
you've got to learn to be an excellent investor because the investment returns that you earn eventually will have a huge impact. And that first year you're saving, whether you earn 6% or 8% or 10%, it really doesn't matter. But at some point, earning just 2% or more a year on your portfolio, especially over the long term, it's going to add up to tens of thousands of dollars. Um, another lesson here is that it's a different way of thinking about the importance of starting early. So, if you start at 25, according to this scenario that Up to Grave created, if you start at 25, you'll be just 38 at the point that your portfolio is doing more of the heavy lifting. But if you wait until you're 35 to start, you're going to be almost 50 by the time returns exceed contributions. And for many people, they'll have to compensate by either saving more or retiring later. Thanks to Slack for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Slack is a collaboration hub that lets you organize your team's work into easily searchable channels. So whether it's projects, interests, teams, or by office, all the right people are always in the loop. Relevant information is in one place, and new team members can easily get up to speed. With Slack, you can reduce emails and streamline your team's communications, because Slack connects the tools and services you need in one place, and allows you to organize your team with real live messaging, video or voice calls, group file sharing, and searchable archives, all in one easy-to-use app. And it works everywhere you go, with mobile apps for iOS and Android that sync seamlessly, you can always pick up where you left off, no matter where you are. Slack, where work happens. Learn more at slack.com. That's slack.com. Don't know much about history. Don't know much biology. Don't know much about a science book. Don't know much about the French I took. If you pay enough attention to the personal finance news, you'll see that some things seem to never change. Americans don't save enough. The current savings rate is just 3.2%. People have too much debt. So, for example, credit card debt is at over a trillion dollars now at an all time high. And the cost of college just keeps going up, often at a rate that exceeds inflation. So, according to the College Board, if you were to look back 30 years to the 1987-88 school year, tuition at a four-year public college cost $3,190, and that's adjusted for inflation, $2,017, so $3,000. Nowadays, it's almost $10,000. So, the cost has tripled on top of inflation, and that is just tuition. The all-in cost these days for the current academic year, for a public institution, if you're in-state, you're talking about $21,000, and at a private school, it's $47,000 a year. That's the sticker price. Fortunately, you can ideally attend at a discount through something called financial aid. And to talk about that with us today, we have Brock Jolly and Tim McFillin. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having us. You guys are here from thecollegefundingcoach.org. And Brock, you founded the company. Tell us a little bit about it. Sure. So it's it's interesting. I uh, I usually tell the story that I started in the financial planning business around 1999, 2000, that time frame. So, uh, which I think coincides with about the time you started at the That's Motley right. Fool. Yeah. So so you remember those days well. And and think about it. You know, late 90s, what was going on in the stock market? Everyone was making money. Everybody was making money. I always say untrained monkeys were throwing darts at dartboards and making money for people. And I got into the financial planning business, and then what happened? People stopped making people money. People stopped making money. So That's it was your fault. I, well, I, always, I always tell people- I it was, was wondering about that. Allison, I always tell people it was not entirely my fault. Well, okay. Just partially. But you know, the question I kept getting from parents was, how in the world are we going to pay for our kids' education? And you sort of had two sets of parents. You had those who had done a good job of saving, and- 
through the dot-com bubble crash lost it, or those other parents where other priorities had sort of taken priority, and they just didn't have enough money. And so, I really started to research it, and long story short, in about 2002, we started the College Funding Coach, really with that goal of, I figured out a few things. I figured out, number one, most financial advisors really don't know this material, and number two is that for most families, their money was sort of in the equity in their homes and in their retirement plans, which is great for retirement. It's not great when you need to send one or two or three or maybe seven kids to college. You need liquidity. You need cash flow. And so, just the opportunity to be able to educate parents and use that as sort of a door opener to do comprehensive planning was a really great opportunity for us. Great. And um, and so, it was Brock's fault that the dot-com bubble burst. And then, I started in this business graduating from college in May of 2008. Mm. So, that so was your there's, fault. There's a trend here. Right. Yeah. So, if you recall, everybody had recovered their losses. Everybody said that, oh, well, the key is you can't be you have to be diversified. You can't just be in tech stocks or you risk losing large amounts of money when there's a crash. Well, how did being diversified turn out for everybody in the end of 2008? Right. Uh, yeah, every stock went down <laughs> in 2008. Exactly. So, that was his fault. This one was my fault. But um, we've worked hard since then, and we've, we've recovered a lot of those losses. Anything going on with you guys that we should know about now right. before the market <laughs> right. crashes? We're, we're, we're hiring. <laughs> exactly. Someone else coming on board with you guys. No, but it's, it's interesting, because as it's evolved, I mean, in the beginning, it was just me. And now we've got uh, about 80 advisors around the country, like Tim, who work in our local markets to be able to bring this information to the parents in those communities. Great. Well, we're going to talk a little bit about how to pay for college, mostly in terms of financial aid. So, we're, we're thinking about people more in high school, but hopefully we'll be able to pass a few tips along for people who have younger kids as well. We're going to talk about five myths about financial aid. So, let's get to it. Myth number one, I make too much money to qualify for need-based aid, so there's no reason for me to complete the free application for federal student aid, also known as the FAFSA. I hear this one almost every time I'm sitting down with families because especially we you know we're in the DC area here we've got a lot of families where it's two incomes and they make a good living but if you live in the DC New York San Francisco market my family lives in San Diego your income goes a lot first to pay Uncle Sam right um, and then what's left over goes to the mortgage and then the bills and everything else and then after you put money into your 401k and everything else there's it's hard to find the, the, those dollars. So, we have a lot of very successful families that don't feel wealthy, right? right? They feel like everybody else in their neighborhood and they don't have extra dollars for college and they think, I don't know what we're going to do, but there's no point in me completing the FAFSA. My family income is over $200,000. What's the point? Right. right. People are forgetting that there's some very valuable um, assets if you actually fill out the FAFSA because you are eligible to receive the unsubsidized Stafford loans from the government. These are very unique loans that no private bank is going to offer a 17-year-old student that has no credit history. Okay, these loans are typically lower interest. Usually, if it's for undergrad, it's 4.45% interest for an unsubsidized Stafford loans. Okay, unsubsidized just means you're going to accrue interest while your student is in college. If you have a lower income, then you can get the subsidized ones, which, again, have the same interest rate, but don't accrue interest while the kid's in college. Here's the thing. If your kid takes out the Stafford government loans that pretty much anybody's going to be eligible to get, regardless of family income, they may end up graduating with anywhere from twenty-five dollars to $30,000 of debt. But if they graduate and they get a low-paying internship job, maybe that pays $30,000, $40,000 a year, just barely enough to make bread and, and buy ramen noodles, they only have to pay, they can do an income-based repayment where they're only mm-hmm. paying 10 15% of their discretionary income. And that's defined as income, owned, or income earned over about $22,000. 
So if your income's 30 grand as an intern coming out of school, you're not going to have to pay a whole lot on your student debt, regardless of the amount. And then as your income rises, maybe when you get to a lot better, higher income position, you can actually afford to pay that debt back. Or if you're like my stepsister who got an engineering job right out of college and making you know, $7,000 a month as a 22-year-old, the debt that she had, she could pay off within a year or two because you go from being a broke college kid to all of a sudden having money, and she's going to be in a great financial position. So whether or not you make a good income out of school, when you have government loans, even if it's a small amount, those have income-based repayments. They're flexible and can work no matter what the situation is. If you go to graduate school, you may also be able to defer some of those loans as well. So that's probably, I would say, the most important reason that families should do that, because you're never going to get offered a loan that's that good of a deal for a student, you know, really until graduate school. And for graduate school, those interest rates are much higher if they're unsubsidized Stafford loans. I'll give you a great success story. We had a family a few years ago that, like Tim was suggesting, never would qualify for need-based aid on paper. But we recommend to all of our parents, at least in the freshman year of college, fill out that FAFSA. You might not get anything, but really, really important to do it because you might get something. In this example, she went to what, at the time at least, was the number one public high school in America and really good student. They regularly send about 100 kids to the Ivy Leagues. And she really wanted to go to a school called Harvard. <laughs> the problem was Harvard didn't really want her to come there. And so she loved Boston as a, as a college town. And long story short, she ended up going to Boston University. One weekend, I think dad was bored. Dad filled out the FAFSA. Long story short, she ended up getting a $19,500 presidential scholarship based purely on merit, based on her GPA and her test scores, that she never would have gotten had they not completed the FAFSA. Because think about it, the schools want to make sure that you're not eligible for some of the federal money like Tim was discussing before they give you their money. So this was purely, it was not need-based aid, it was merit-based aid that she would not have gotten had they not completed the FAFSA. So always complete it. So for families who are curious about whether they would get need-based aid, how can they figure that out? On the internet, there are calculators that calculate what's known as the uh, expected family contribution. Do you recommend that people do that? Are those accurate? Absolutely. It's, it's, it's the line in the sand. And it may not get you to the penny accurate, but it'll get you pretty close. And there's sort of two formulas. There's You mentioned the EFC. You mentioned earlier the FAFSA, Free Application for Federal Student Aid. And what's interesting is every single college and university in the country requires the FAFSA. There's a list of, I think the number is 226 schools that also require a form called the CSS profile. And that's going to dive a little bit deeper. It's going gonna, it's gonna to figure out some of the questions that maybe the FAFSA doesn't ask. Things like, how much money do you have in your home equity and in your retirement plans and that sort of thing. It tends to be the more elite, more selective schools. There are seven public schools that also require it. So you want to know as you go into it, what forms does your school require? But what's really important is that you draw that line in the sand. Figure out the rules of the game. Figure out whether or not you're going to be eligible for need-based aid. And it may vary school to school, meaning you may be eligible for need-based aid at one school and not in another based upon the cost of attendance or the sticker price at that particular school. So if you go onto our website, which is just thecollegefundingcoach.org, in the upper right-hand corner, there's a big red button that you can click that, and you can calculate your expected family contribution. And that, that's your starting point to determine, will you be eligible for need-based aid? If so, we're going to take this path. Or are you never going to be eligible for need-based aid, in which case we're going to take this path? One quick question about the FAST before we move on. What year is that based on? So if you are, let's say, a college or a high school freshman, 
Now, what year do you look at in terms of your net worth and income to think like that's what's going to be figured into the fast? Great, great question because this is a recent change last year. So now, if you're a senior in high school, you can start completing the FAFSA on October 1st. Okay, it used to be January 1st. So if you're a senior in high school in the fall and you fill it out on October 1st, they're going to look at your tax returns from your parents from the previous year. So you're essentially looking two years back from when you start freshman year. So in other words, if, if you've got a child who would be a junior now and therefore a rising senior in the 2018-2019 school year, they're going to f- complete that form in October and they're going to look at income from 2017 to determine that they look at the assets as of the day that you complete the form. Okay. Right? So it's income from what they call the prior, prior year, assets as of the day that you complete the form. Right. So if you hypothetically have an 11th grader in spring. Hypothetically. Hypothetically, right now. Um, that's <laughs> that's look, me, by the way. That's, looking, I have at, that's looking at some great Virginia schools like UVA and Virginia Tech. You're going to want to complete that FAFSA on October 1st. Because not only is it going to get the ball rolling quickly on this, some scholarships are first come, first serve. Okay, and some institutions, if there's early admission, they want to see it early and often. And if they see that you've completed the FAFSA, there's even there's a lot of stuff I've read that says that admissions officers are more likely to even accept you because it shows that you're a little bit more committed than somebody that's not even completing the FAFSA. It probably means you're not that interested in the school, and they don't want to send out an acceptance letter if they think there's a low probability of you uh, considering it strongly. Just a, a really quick point on that, too. Most schools are need-blind. There are schools out there that are not need blind. And so I'll give you an example. We've got a family that we work with. Mom and dad were making a little over a million dollars a year. We said complete the FAFSA. And the reason is those schools know definitively, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that they will never need to tap the resources of the financial aid office to help pay for or subsidize that child's education. Right. Right. In other words, mom and dad are making great money. And and by the way, they also may like that for future endowment purposes and things like that. that you know, maybe this child will inherit some money, that sort of thing. Gotcha. All right, let's move on to the second myth. Myth number two. If I have a lot of assets in my 401k, IRA, and home, my student will never get any aid. Yeah, this is this is a big part of college financial aid planning if you're in a situation. So a good example I can give you of this is a family we've worked, at, worked with recently that has essentially has a, a, a home that they own, their primary home, free and clear, that's worth over a million dollars. They've got a lot of money in their 401ks and their IRAs, but the dad, who was the main income earner, stopped working last year and is essentially semi-retired. He's 60 years old, so he's a much older parent than the average we see. But he's got all of these assets, the total about $3 million, zero of which count against them on the FAFSA. And he's over age 59 and a half. Okay, so he has access to this money should he should he need it or want to spend it on college. But on paper, their family income is fifteen thousand dollars, and they have an eleventh and a tenth grader. Okay, we mentioned earlier how it's difficult for families with higher incomes to get financial aid. That can change dramatically if there's two or more kids in school simultaneously, because most schools will take what they expect you to pay and divide it by two. So if you've got one kid going to Virginia Tech and you've got one kid going to Georgetown. Right now, that's combined nearly $100,000. So even if you have a high income, but they're in the school simultaneously, your expected family contribution may be $60,000 because your family income is $150,000. So if your kid's going to in-state, just one kid, you have no chance of getting financial aid. But because those assets don't count on the FAFSA, 
um, you have a good chance when two kids are in school simultaneously, particularly if one is going to a more expensive private school, because it may cost hundred grand total. You're only expected to pay sixty, and so there's a forty thousand dollar need gap potential there. Doesn't mean you're going to get it, but it means you have the opportunity. Got it. Now, is that a difference with the the CSS? By the way, do this, the CS does factor in retirement and home it, equity? It can. It can. So, so what I always tell people is draw that line in the sand, figure out what your expected family contribution is, and then if your child is applying to or attending a CSS profile school, you want to know what questions they ask. So, just to put it in perspective, the CSS profile is actually a pool of about seven hundred questions of which each each school can ask 10. So, so it varies from school to school. It varies from school to school. And so it the schools like it because it allows them to customize. And there are some schools actually even have their own institutional forms that tend to ask CSS profile style questions. So all you want to know when you're going into it is understand what forms your school requires. The FAFSA is pretty cut and dry. We, we understand it. We know what it asks. We understand what counts and what doesn't. But if a child is considering or strongly considering a CSS profile school, we want to understand at that school what questions are they going to ask. The income is always the biggest driver in the formula, regardless of the the forms that they use. And in a lot of cases, as Tim mentioned, if you've got a family that's earning, you know, maybe over two hundred thousand dollars as a good threshold, they're probably not going to qualify for need based aid. But if they've got a low income, as the example that Tim just gave, we might be able to do some things to shift assets. And I always say legally, morally, ethically, right. <laughs> shift those assets in such a way that it could allow you to qualify for even greater amounts of need-based aid. Right. And you can't wait till your senior year of high school to no. do that. You've got to do that planning soon. Absolutely. And, and I think the key is for, for so many families, they, they do wait until junior or senior year the sooner you start, the better. You, you can draw that line in the sand, make it up. Let's say you've got a fourth grader. Draw the line in the sand now. Now, inevitably, things will change, but at least you've got, you understand the rules of the game and you've got a game plan that you can start to implement. Right. Also keep in mind, it's, it's not the income that you earned 10 years ago or five years ago. It's only the, the calendar year that they're looking at for your taxes. Mm-hmm. Right. So if you're going to choose to take a sabbatical one year, you could do it. You could precisely choose when to do it wisely. Right. Or if you're a business owner, you could choose to depreciate something in a certain year, buy equipment in a certain year, to lower your um, income for that particular year. So another important part of this is if you are in a situation where you, you may have a lot of assets but a, a lower income, and you may have multiple kids in school simultaneously, try to apply to some schools that are FAFSA only. Just as an example, since we're we're sitting here in, in the D.C. area, UVA, William and Mary, Georgetown, GW. All of these schools require the CSS profile. So you are less likely to get financial aid from these schools than you would a FAFSA-only school if you're in that situation with high assets and a, and a lower income. Whereas Virginia Tech, University of Maryland, James Madison, FAFSA-only. Uh, my stepsister went to Georgia Tech, another great school, FAFSA-only. So you can make this a, a you know, you want to make it a specific part of the financial aid planning process if you're talking about college funding. And I think that's really where we try to add more value than we see most people even thinking that far ahead. Gotcha. So let's move on to myth number three. 529 plans will dramatically reduce any chance my kids have of receiving merit or need-based aid. Okay, I'll, this, is, this one comes up all the time. Parents say, why, why would I do a 529 plan? I'm just going to hurt my eligibility for getting financial aid. And I understand what their, their logic. But like Brock mentioned earlier, the biggest driver by far 
of the formula for the FAFSA that determines your expected family contribution is your income. After they make the deductions and all, and depending on parents' age and some other factors, your income essentially counts at roughly 47% against you. Okay. Whereas an asset, a parental asset, which is what a 529 plan is considered, only counts at up to 5.64% against you. So let's say you've got two kids or three, and let's say you've got $100,000 in combined family 529 plans. It doesn't matter which, which kid it's in. It's considered a parental asset. That $100,000 will reduce your financial aid eligibility on the FAFSA by $5,640 if your income exceeds you know, thirty or $35,000. So for most families um, in this area, you know, even if you have a significant amount in there, it's not going to necessarily completely bump you out of getting financial aid. The other thing is if your income is high enough, you don't want to be planning for need-based financial aid. You need to be planning for reducing costs, taking unsubsidized Stafford loans, finding ways to get grants and scholarships, and doing whatever you can to reduce those out-of-pocket costs. That's more of the important thing. And I use my stepsister as the, the shining example. I'm, I'm sure I've mentioned her before. So she got into Stanford, okay, and she got offered $0. Okay, my stepdad went to Stanford, so he wasn't going to tell her no, but I know they were sweating bullets because Stanford costs $70,000 a year roughly, times four years. There's no way they could help her afford it. They need to retire at some point. They're behind on retirement. They know that. And fortunately, she also got into Georgia Tech, and they offered a 100% free ride. Why? Because Stanford doesn't need to. Right. Right? Everybody's top of their class. Everybody's near valedictorian that's going to Stanford. They don't need to incentivize students with necessarily a ton of merit aid, but they will give you a lot of need-based aid if your family doesn't have the income. So you got the brains but not the bucks. Otherwise, they know you're probably willing to pay to have that red you know, bumper sticker. Right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Georgia Tech knows, okay, Tim's stepsister Lydia, she's not going to Georgia Tech unless we heavily incentivize her. And guess where my parents wanted her to go? Georgia Tech. And she graduated with the same engineering degree, got the same consulting job with Deloitte, living in Atlanta now, has zero dollars of debt versus having $300,000 of debt at five, six, seven percent interest. Right. Uh, so, any advice about the timing of 529 withdrawals? And this might have more to do with who owns it. I know a lot of people have grandparents, for example, who have opened up 529s yeah. for their grandkids. Well, it's interesting. I, I always say to parents, a 529 plan is a great tool. It's not necessarily a great strategy. You know, you think about those parents who were sending their kids to college in 2000 to 2002 and 2008 or 2009, and all of a sudden the market went down in value significantly and parents thought they had done a good job of saving. And that's just one example. But to your point, with grandparent-owned 529 plans, generally speaking, and this could be grandparents, it could be aunts and uncles, somebody other than mom and dad, because, by the way, in the financial aid formula, a 529 plan is always considered a parental asset, even if it's funded with custodial account money, which is sometimes a little confusing. But if it's a grandparent or aunt or uncle-owned 529 plan or neighbor-owned 529 plan, it doesn't show up on the formula until the point at which distributions come out of the plan. Because when distributions come from the plan, it can be considered untaxed income for the benefit of the child. And untaxed income can count at a rate as high as 50%. Hmm. So again, the key is, and the strategy here, draw that line in the sand, and then you can determine, look, if, if you're not going to be eligible for need-based aid, it doesn't matter. But if, you're, if there's a chance that you may be eligible for need-based aid, it matters a lot. I mean, I've seen situations where very well-intentioned grandparents 
put money into a 529 plan or even gifting stocks and things like that. I mean, there's lots of strategies there. Again, very well intentioned, good objective, but the problem is it can really prevent that child from maximizing their need-based aid eligibility. So, be you know, caveat emptor, buyer beware mm-hmm. before you before you go down that path, just make sure you understand the rules of the game. I would add that if your kid is getting some form of financial aid and you're going to use grandparents, aunts and uncles, um, 529 plans for the benefit of the kid, use it towards the end of their college because it counts as, as income the following year. So if you use the 529 plan their senior year and they're getting financial aid, well, it counts against them, but not until the next year anyway. And then, so it doesn't matter. Ideally, they have graduated. Exactly. That's the other rule. Get your your kid to graduate in four years because the average matriculation rate is closer to six. Yeah, it's kind of crazy. All right, so let's move on to myth number four. In-state colleges are the only affordable option for families that cannot qualify for aid. Well, I just gave you an example of my own family. Okay, <laughs> Now, not every kid is going to have the type of grades that you have and get accepted to Ivy League schools, turn them down to get a full ride. That's kind of best case scenario. right? But for a lot of other kids, there are big state schools, particularly in the middle of this country, that are not getting flooded with applications that from kids from the East and the West Coast. Just as an example, we when we get questionnaires back from families, they'll say where their kids are looking at college. Okay, How, many, how often do you think they say University of Arkansas, Alabama? Okay. And from Northern Virginia, probably not. From, that many. Yeah, exactly. I know we've got a national podcast here, and there's plenty of, of applicants that are getting in those states. But those schools, they want diversity among people from all over the country because all it does is help with average GPA. All it does is help with the, the whole environment of the school. And so schools like Alabama, Old Miss, Kentucky, they're going out of their way. University of Vermont's another good one where they offer very generous out of state packages if you've got the grades, right? So if you've got over a 1350 you know, SAT and you've got over 3.5 at Alabama, they're going to give you a significant discount to the point where you could go to University of Alabama and pay 18 grand a year all in versus going to James Madison and paying 25 or 20 or Virginia Tech and paying 26 grand a year. Multiply that by four years, you're talking about a significant amount of savings for another very good school. Right? And if you're top of your class at any major state school, it's all about you. You're the one that makes, makes it work. Right, and I've I'm seeing that a lot where parents are getting even a better deal than they may get going in state because especially in certain states like Virginia or California, they're getting so many applications that they can essentially decline a lot, and not have to offer as many generous aid packages if that makes sense. Well, in a lot of these schools, they they sort of have whether official or unofficial, they have quotas, right? In other words, they want to be able to say we've got kids from all 50 states and 47 foreign countries, and so some of the states that Tim just named, they they want that child from Virginia, right? And so, and the same is true for the Virginia schools of kids from Wisconsin and North Dakota and Idaho. And so I was probably, as an out-of-state student who went to the University of Virginia, I, I'm willing to admit that maybe I was that quota. They needed the kid from Indiana, <laughs> you know, but, uh, but the point is, I, I think it's just, just one though, play, play the cards you're dealt, right? Right. And then the other thing I would throw in there is, you know, Parents that are have that have kids with good grades or you know above a 3.0, they'll start getting letters in the mail, 11th and, and 12th grade from schools they probably haven't heard of before. A lot of private schools that on paper cost fifty thousand dollars a year, but like Brock said, a lot of these colleges, especially private ones, are run like a business. They need they have seats to fill. They've got dorm rooms to fill, and the marginal cost of adding a student does not cost them fifty thousand. It may only cost them ten to fifteen thousand, and so if they can charge your student. 25 grand, they're still making a, a net profit. And it's still beneficial to them. So there are a lot of private schools where even if your kid doesn't have, 
you know, 4.0 and a 1400 SAT. There's still a lot of good options out there where private schools will bring the price tag, price tag way down to match closer to what you would get in state. Another really good thing to know, little tidbit here, is if your children are considering out of state public schools, look at tuition reciprocity programs. And what I mean by that is, as an example, here on the on the East Coast, there's a program called the Academic Common Market, where there's 15 states, basically from Delaware down to Florida, across to Oklahoma and Texas. In the Midwest, there's a program. There's the Western Undergraduate Exchange. There's a New England program, where if your child goes to school in one of those states and majors in a major that is not available in your home state, that's generally the requirement, they may be eligible for in-state tuition at that out-of-state school. So don't think your child is a total derelict simply because they're talking about out-of-state schools. Look at those tuition reciprocity programs. Got it. Yeah, just one more example of why the college planning process has gotten more and more complicated. I mean, I know high school seniors, the last thing they want to do is 10 applications, but you can really negotiate with these schools. If one school is offering a $10,000 package and they really want your student, and you say, hey, University of Vermont's offering this, I use this as an example because I had a family I work with do this, all of a sudden, University of Vermont will take out five grand if they really want your student enough. So having multiple offers on the table where you can negotiate is valuable, and I think a lot of parents don't realize that you can do that. They just think the offer that you get is what you get, but these admissions offices are very flexible, especially if they your kid is in good standing, has good grades, and they want them enough. It's, I, think, it's a I, I think the sooner that families realize it's a sales process, right? The schools are selling to them, they're selling to the schools, and it's big business. And so the sooner that they can really approach it with that mindset, the more successful they'll be. One of the advisors in our at our office um, went to Bucknell, and he worked with a family that goes to Bucknell. Now, Bucknell is a very expensive school. They, the first year, they just took the offer that was given to them, which was like 8000 less than the full price. The student wrote a letter uh, during the spring semester and said, my family is really struggling to make this. They're scared they're going to have to downsize their house, not retire when they want to. And it's done that three years since. Graduated last year. Got a $10,000 discount at Bucknell the following three years, just because they didn't want to lose him. They thought he was going to have to transfer, and they did what was in their best interest, and they wanted to retain a good student. So... If you, t- if you spend time and go out of your way to contact admissions offices, it can be well worth your time. We're seeing, especially with a school that has some money that has a high sticker cost. Um, just as a just quick example, to wrap up on this one, University of Southern California, I looked this up for uh, one of the families I work with, only about 3% of people pay the full tuition and room and board costs at, universe, at USC. That means 97% of people are getting work-study, FAFSA loans, they're getting some sort of merit aid, financial aid, right? So just remember that, right? Now, unfortunately, 2 to 3% of those people, some of them live in this area, um, but you can really negotiate with these schools, again, if they want your student enough. Great. And moving on to our final myth, myth number five. For divorced couples, aid is based on the income of the parent who claims the student on her or his tax return. Sure. Well, there's actually, it, it's a very common mis, misperception. And the reality is there are seven questions that determine who is the custodial parent. And I won't go through all seven, but what I will tell you is the starting point is who provides greater than 50% of the support for the child. The second question is who does the child live with greater than 50% of the time? And so there's a series of questions. The last or seventh question that they ask is, who claims them on the tax return? And so the point of that is that 
don't think just because mom or dad claims them on the tax return that that's necessarily considered to be the custodial parent. And again, there are ways of strategizing. If in divorce proceedings they say, you've got equal custody, well, maybe one parent who coincidentally might be the parent who earns less money or has less in assets, maybe they provide an extra dollar or two during the course of the year, they could be considered the custodial parent. So again, understanding the cards that you're dealt, understanding how the rules work, and being able to approach it from that mindset may, in fact, allow you to qualify for more need-based aid as a result. Right. So if there's, besides a leap year, right, there's an odd number of days in the year, 365 days. So if the, the custodial parent, based on the first question, would be, which one has the kids or kid for one more day than the other? And if it's 51% to 49 that's the custodial parent for colleges. So if you've got one parent whose income is the custodial parent's 50 grand, the other parent's 150, if it's a FAFSA only school like we had mentioned before, then they may only be counting, well they will only count if it's a FAFSA only school that custodial parent's income and assets. Um, not only that, um, there's a couple CSS profile schools out there that will not ask about the non-custodial parent. Boston College and Boston University are, are two examples of that. So in other words, even though they have the CSS profile, which is just additional financial questions like we had mentioned previously, where they typically ask about retirement assets, home equity, other things the FAFSA may not count, there are some schools that do not ask about the custodial parent. So again, where you're applying to school and specifically your financial situation in your family in that given time, because all that matters is that one year, is very important in term, to, to determine where your sh- kid should uh, apply and where they should try to maximize aid. Because unless you're taking the time to do this, there's no way, I mean, you have your full-time job. There's no way you have, we all have the same limitation of 24 hours in the day. How much time do you have to look up all this stuff? Right. Right. How much time, how much effort does your exhausted high school senior after taking all the SATs and all the stress of applying for college want to look up this stuff? So that's where we really try to add value. And that's why so many people, I think, come to our, our workshops in the area nationally because it's just there's so much information and it's hard to go sift through it all as a parent to find the time. Yeah. Got it. Well, thanks for coming in, guys. Absolutely. Thanks Pleasure. for having us. Very this helpful. Great. So if you'd like to learn more from Tim and Brock, you can visit their website, thecollegefundingcoach.org. But we are going to ask you to stick around a little while longer. Please. Uh-oh. Okay. Please. All right. Support from All Evil Answers comes from our friends at Rocket Mortgage by Quicken Loans. Chances are you're confident when it comes to your work, your hobbies, and your life. Rocket Mortgage gives you that same level of confidence when it comes to buying a home or refinancing your existing home loan. Rocket Mortgage is simple, allowing you to fully understand all the details and be confident you're getting the right mortgage for you. To get started, go to rocketmortgage.com. Equal housing lender licensed in all 50 states. NMLS, consumeraccess.org, number 3030. I wish I could go back to college. Life was so simple back then. What would I give to go back and live in a dorm with a meal plan again? All right, you guys obviously know a lot about paying for college, but what do you know about fitting in once you're there? So, pop quiz time. I'm going to test your smarts about some of the most bizarre college traditions. Very exciting. Some of these will be easy for you. All right. After alcohol was banned on Penn's campus, students resorted to throwing what baked good onto the football field when the pep band plays the school's anthem, Drink a Highball, during the third quarter. What was thrown on? Or what was a it? baked good. A baked, a baked good. good is thrown onto the football field every time the pep band plays the school's anthem, Drink a Highball, wow. which is a heck of a school anthem. <laughs> a baked good. All right, bro, you want to go first? 
<laughs> Sourdough bread. <laughs> okay. I'm not going to give it to you, but you're in the ballpark. Okay. I'm way off then. I oh. figured the Penn Quakers, you know, oatmeal raisin cookies. Oh, oh wow. Delicious. I just said lo- loaf of bread. Very close. It is actually toast because, after all, when you drink a highball, you're going to toast. Get toasted. Uh, it is estimated that 20 to 30,000 pieces of toast are thrown on a good day. And Penn actually had to buy a toast Zamboni to pick up all of it <laughs> after the football, off of the football field. Not a gluten-free school. No, <laughs> no. All right. So sorry. Nobody got any points on that one. All right. We, we don't really keep score. No, I'm really bad at keeping score. <laughs> we'll put the fool in Motley Fool. Yeah. Yeah. Students at the University of Maryland leave offerings at the feet of Tetsudo, the statue of the school's mascot, sometimes frisbees, couches, fruit, stolen flat screen TVs, and more, in an attempt to get some good luck. What kind of animal is he? If you don't get this, you don't live in the DMV. Well, it's almost too obvious. Well, not all of our listeners live in this area. That's true. All right. All right. The answer is? I put either Turtle or Kermit the Frog because (laughs) there is a Kermit the Frog statue at the University of Maryland. Turtle. Turtle. Terrapin. Terrapin. So I asked Rob Brunette. Who went to the University of Maryland? Should I accept turtle over a terrapin because there is a difference Uh uh-oh well i'd have written terrapin but a terrapin (laughs) is a type of turtle so what did rob say rob actually said he would accept turtle. Uh, okay all right but there is a difference so you know i'm gonna give you an extra point just because you get extra credit thank you thank you jim henson went to the university of maryland by the way that's why they have a statue of him and like i said ah interesting yeah i think think bro bro only gets a half a point because he split his uh his vote there I'll, ta- uh, I'll yeah. take a half a point for Kermit. Okay, one half. I'll die on that felt sword. The last day to drop classes has become a more musical tradition at MIT. Every year on this day, students push what instrument off the roof of the Baker House dormitory? For dropping classes? Mm-hmm. Same day as dropping classes, students get together on top of a dormitory and they drop what musical instrument off of the roof? Can I call my stepdad who went to MIT? <laughs> No, you may do not. Do a call. Photo friend. No, no, you may not. All right. I'm going to say tuba just because I heard recently about how there's this increased thefts of tubas recently. So I'm blaming all the MIT students. Okay. You're wrong. <laughs> I thought tuba. I went bass drum. Also wrong. Uh, guitar. Piano is actually uh, the correct answer. What? Yep. So the tradition started when some students in 1972 bought two non-functioning pianos and combined them to make one functioning piano, and then they hurled the leftover parts of the other piano off the roof. Wow. That sounds dangerous and expensive. (laughs) Only at an engineering school. Can you use your school loans for that? Yeah. Well, then they can put it back together afterwards. It's a fun project. That's true. There you go. Why do I imagine that, like, Daffy Duck is walking on the sidewalk? It's very cartoonish. It is kind of cartoonish. All right, let's head to Oregon, where at Reed College they celebrate this element for its tendency to be overshadowed by flashy elements, such as oxygen. Regardless of how many years they've been doing it, it's always the seventh annual, with traditions of eating hot dogs and freezing things, like socks. Oh, oh, someone's feeling Tim, confident. Tim's looking confident. My, my stepsister went to read, so maybe oh, really? I need to phone a friend. Yeah. I need to phone a friend. <laughs> no, she gave a real good hint there at the beginning. Phosphorus. No. <laughs> Carbon. Nitrogen. Nitrogen! Yes! 
Yes, that's right. Freezing, come on. The tradition goes uh, back to 1992, yeah. and uh, I found this on the website Thrillist. They didn't mention it in their article, but I also have to assume that sales of whipped cream cans and nitrous cartridges <laughs> cartridges are also very popular on this day. That's a different podcast. They were, yeah. When I, when, I worked, when I worked at Starbucks, they had like a lockbox for those. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, so they eat hot dogs for the nitrates, and they freeze stuff in liquid nitrogen and all of that. Got you. All right. Flu, mono, and meningococcal meningitis invariably sweep the dorms in the days following a Stanford tradition called full moon on the quad. Despite attempts by the school to ban it, thousands of students show up on the quad at midnight under the first full moon of the academic year, and seniors do what to freshmen? (laughs) Oh, this this has potential for being really gross. Yeah. I think I know. Can we start at the other end of the table this time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. As, as long as you have your answer. Do you already write your answer? Because I don't want you to oh. steal his answer. I was going to say, um, they're they're naked and they pour water on them. Oh, no. No, they don't. Uh, it must have just been me and Brock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what you do in your own time. We streaked so the, the lawn at UVA. So. Yeah, was, right? Yeah. I was close on that. I said pour beer on them. No. Oh, that'd be preferable. All I have is sputum-related activities. Bro! <laughs> What? They smooch. Was that what you meant by that? I, isn't sputum a catch-all term for any kind of bodily fluid? No. All right, I'm not going to give it to they you. They still do this? being overly gross. Yes! <laughs> smooch! Oh, man. According to the New York Times, many kissers wear bingo boards, and they'll name 25 different types of kisses they want to get. Oh, boy. Such as one from each freshman dorm, or a rower, or a fencer, or a redhead, or a pothead, or someone over six <laughs> foot five, or whatever. Um... So someone who got... I want all three. Redhead, pothead, 6'5". Yeah, right? (laughs) (laughs) Um, So also apparently the most popular one to kiss is the tree. So someone dresses up like... Is is like deemed the mascot and they... I don't know if it is the actual mascot or if someone's like, I'm the mascot for the day. And everyone has to kiss that tree. So that tree ends up kissing like hundreds and hundreds of people um, under the moonlight. And so, yeah, thus flu and mono and meningitis. <laughs> wow. And that's norms. why they don't have to offer any financial aid. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wow. So there you go. Smart uh, people there at I'm Stanford. A, I'm going to have to ask my stepdad about that. Ask, ask, him, ask him what his list was. Yes. And then share it with my mom. Yep. All right. Uh, so that's what I got. And a yes. You are definitely the winner, Tim. Congratulations, Tim. Congratulations. (laughs) So thank you so much for putting up with us. No, this was awesome. We really appreciate it. This has been a lot of fun. So much fun. Thanks again. Thanks, Thanks, guys. I want to thank Tim and Brock for joining us again from thecollegefundingcoach.org. If you want to learn more about what they offer, again, it's thecollegefundingcoach.org. Uh, yeah, so that's the show. It is edited collegially by Rick Engdahl, and I also want to thank Austin for helping us out this week as we've just all been on crazy schedules and in and out, and it's been a mess. Somehow we got this edit. Somehow this episode came together. I feel like I say that every week. Since <laughs> getting to be a trend, I swear, people, we do plan on this stuff. I swear I am also healthy from time to time as well, so... Uh, next week I'll be healthier, right? Sure. All right. Thanks. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.